0: On today's show, we're gonna be talking about four steps to becoming an exceptional service technician. Step one, the prosperity mindset. Welcome to Cracking the Code, the show that helps you overcome the challenges you face every day in contracting and keeps you on the cutting edge of emerging trends and best practices. Welcome to the audio version of Cracking the Code. Now, this was originally a video show, so if you hear us talking about something related to an image or any other visual element, you can see what we're talking about by going over to EGI.org show and see what we're doing there and Cracking the Code. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. Over the next four weeks, we're doing a series on how to be an exceptional service technician. Here's what we're going to be talking about. First and foremost, the prosperity mindset. Second, training. Number three, the process. And number four, accountability. So whether you're a technician or an owner, over the next few weeks, you need to pay attention, take notes, and put this stuff into action. As I always say, success It's not a knowledge problem, it's an implementation problem. You know, as you all know, I believe the prosperity mindset is the basis for any success in life and business. It's the basis of my entire book, The Power of Consistency. As a service technician, the mindset is the first step. Having that mindset that is geared and programmed to thrive in the face of adversity. One of the things you also have to remember is that mindset is that sales and being successful in sales as a service technician, it's all about high service. It's not about high pressure. you got to keep the right mindset. Take a quick look at this video that illustrates what it takes to be really successful in residential sales. Effective sales is about high service, never about high pressure. Let me give an example of one of the most effective low-key sales presentations I've ever seen in my life. For many years, I lived west of Colorado Springs up in a small town called Woodland Park, Colorado. And it took about a half an hour each day to drive out of the mountains, and as I drove out of the mountains each day, I would go past a little restaurant called the Hungry Bear Restaurant. And as I drove past that restaurant every morning, I would see a white Ford pickup out there with black lettering on there, And all it said was Joe the Concrete Guy and a phone number. So I'd see his truck there every day and I'd get kind of a chuckle. And then one day, about two years after I'm living there, I'm out in my driveway and I realize I need some steps poured at the end of my driveway. So naturally I think about Joe, the concrete guy. The next morning I pull in the restaurant, I get his phone number off the truck, I call him up a couple of days later, and Joe comes out to my house. Now when Joe pulls into the driveway, he is so down to earth, the basic cool mountain guy, right? He's got long bushy hair, a big beard, t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops on, right? Nothing pretentious about this guy, nothing pushy, nothing slick or super sophisticated, right? So Joe gets out of his truck, And he comes down to the edge of the driveway, and I'm explaining to him where I want these steps poured. And every now and then I would look over at Joe, and he was looking at a motorcycle trailer that I had parked next to my driveway in the dirt and the rocks. And so finally I look at Joe and I said, Joe, is there something interesting about the trailer? He says to me, why is your motorcycle trailer parked in the dirt and the rocks? And I looked at him and I said, well, Joe, as you can plainly see, the driveway is not wide enough for the trailer. Joe looks back at me and says, you know, when I'm here pouring your steps, I could widen your driveway, right? Instantaneously my budget goes from a thousand bucks to about six thousand bucks. Now was Joe high-pressure? Was he some slick you know snake oil salesman? Of course not. Joe was all about high service. So he write the paperwork up and at the end I said, Joe I gotta tell you that was a beautiful technique to get the average ticket up. He goes, what do you mean technique? And he goes, that was just common sense. I said, well I know it's common sense but it was a brilliant use of the technique. He looks at me and he says this, Mr. Long, what does it say on the side of my truck? And I look over at his truck and I say, well, it says Joe the Concrete Guy, right? He goes, yeah, it doesn't say Joe the Concrete Window Siding Roofing Guy. It says Joe the Concrete Guy. That's all I do. That's all I've ever done in my life. For 40 years, I've been pouring concrete in these mountains. And I learned a long time ago, the best way to serve my customers is that when I walk on a piece of property, I look for every problem that concrete can solve. You see, that's a professional approach to sales you got to look for every problem that your products and services can solve. That's how you sell like a professional, and that, my friend, is not high pressure. That's about high service. To get a little different perspective, I want to run a video here from Mike Treese because he talks about what kind of mindset is important if you're going to be successful as a service technician. In this clip, Mike is going to talk about the mindset of helpfulness and how as service technicians, we need to shift our thinking to helping people and not worry about trying to sell them something.
1: Start with the whole philosophy, first of all, you know, a technician um, and it's changed a little bit than than it was even 20 years ago. Twenty years ago, you know, these these guys and some gals were coming off the farm still uh, and they were, they were more mechanically inclined or their dad had uh, worked on the farm or just grew up uh, uh, fixing their own equipment, whether it's the truck or it's the car or it's the trailer or it's working on the house. So we were good at working with our hands. Um, and, and so we, we were naturally mechanics. Now, 20 years later, and, and in some cases, uh, 30 years later, um, people are coming out of high school. They don't have those skills. A lot of uh, parents don't teach those things to their kids. And a lot of people aren't working on farms. There's corporate farming out there now that has kind of taken over. So uh, the, the, the technicians that we see that do go through the trade schools don't have necessarily uh, um, the, uh, the the skills that we would like them to have. So we focus on teaching them how to fix stuff and we don't teach them uh, the other skill, which is how to fix people. And uh, you know, the other thing is, is we've got this darn day and age now of people and kids, especially the mill- millennials are used to talking through devices and they don't talk as well to people. So you know we we've got to get people comfortable talking to folks. So let's say for example we've got that technician, and uh, he's gotten good. He's got his training. He's good at fixing stuff, but he's not necessarily the best at talking with people. And then the boss goes, you know, man, you you got to sell something. You can't just go out there and do maintenance uh, visits because every time you go do a tune-up, that's actually cost us money. That is what we call a lost leader, <clears throat> and we need you to go out on those visits. And actually sell something, create a lead for replacement or uh, sell somebody a a filtration system or a thermostat or a humidifier or a mini split, something. Just, you know, come back tomorrow with a sale. And it's going, well, man, I don't know. And, uh, you know, when it comes to replacing equipment, I can fix stuff and I don't see any reason to 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 you know, replace it because I can fix it. That's my job. I'm a fix it guy. And, and, uh, you know, in order to sell somebody something, I don't know, I probably wouldn't do that in my house. So I don't know that I would talk to people about that. <clears throat> and so what we, what we end up with is people out there just fixing stuff and coming up with excuses. And eventually, you know, the boss kind of pushes them aside and, and tries to hire somebody new, but here's the problem. The bosses aren't trainers, uh, they can be good coaches, but a lot of bosses out there uh, actually came up through the ranks themselves. They were technicians. They may not have been good at sales, but at some point they had to get better at it and they started selling systems and maybe created a company and started hiring people. But through all of that, they're they're really just a tech themselves and they're not great at uh, motivating or uh, training others to do what they need them to do. So the guys just don't ever get any training. And then the boss says, you know, I need you to sell something. And they're going, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. So here's what I do. Don't sell. Just, Just don't stop selling. Nobody wants to be sold to anyway. You gotta stop selling. What you need to do is start asking questions of people and, and then helping them with solutions to things that are going on in their lives. So there's a series of questions that we should be asking every single time we go into a home. <clears throat> and, you know, the, they're simple questions like, you know, gosh, who in your home suffers from allergies, asthma, hay fever, size conditions, you know, that kind of thing. And if they say, well, uh, you know, my son, he's got some allergies. OK, fair enough. Tell me about that. What's what's been going on? Uh, well, I don't know. He you know, sneezes and stuff like that. OK, well, does he have does he take any over the counter medicine or maybe prescription medicine? And you see we're starting to dig a little bit. Right. Uh, does he have an inhaler or anything like that? OK, um, uh, tell me, when does it happen? When, when does he get allergies? Is it in your house or outside or at school? Uh, is it food allergies or is it air? You know, something that he breathes. Let's dig into this a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, we find out, you know, the kid's name's Andrew and he's got uh, allergies allergic to dust and, and other de- debris. <laughs> pollen usually in the fall and the spring seems to be a a big thing for him and after talking about it as well we're actually kind of getting the customer the parent to start to see you know this this is kind of serious i really you know we hadn't thought about it for years andrew's just andrew and and you know he, he sneezes every once in a while and, and he's got some issues but he's got medicine he's probably okay but now i'm starting to realize dang he's this is actually kind of serious uh he does have allergies and, and we say so let me ask you a question if i can help Andrew breathe better would you want me to? And you just shut up and listen, right? But they're always going to say yes. If we, if we just, but it's about how to ask that question. So let's go back and, and try this again. We ask a question. So who in your house suffers from allergies? And they're going, well, you know, we've we got this couple of us. Okay. And, and we kind of move on. And later on, we said, gosh, if we could help you, you know, maybe have less dust in your home, is that something you want us to to, to look at for you. And they're going, I don't know, it seems to be okay. And the whole thing can go south. But if we do our job right, and we honestly, I mean, passionately ask, so tell me what's going on here. Uh, 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 who's who is what's his name okay and 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 so you review he's got allergies and, and and it's in the fall and the spring um you say so what kind of filtration are you buying now you know I, when i went down there a little while ago all you have was one of those you know fiberglass filters is that what you usually buy when you guys go to the hardware store you try to buy something a little better um and we have an honest discussion with people and they can start to realize you know this is something i should probably pay attention to And my son, Andrew, yeah, I had some issues. And I'm going to ask that question again. Gosh, if I could help Andrew breathe better, would you want me to? Yeah, it's going to be the answer, right? Of course it's going to be the answer. That is the key, that question. Gosh, if I could help you and we provide a solution, if I could help Miranda, your daughter, be more comfortable in her bedroom. That's something you want me to look into for you guys. If I could help you guys level out the humidity in your home so you're not so dry in the winter. I mean, you got, you know, you were just talking about uh, cracked skin. Um, If I could help you with that, would you want me to? It's not that tough. And this is a simple question we get these
0: guys to ask. You know, that's great perspective from Mike that we have to have that mindset of helpfulness and service, right? Because service is the true meaning of life according to Leo Tolstoy anyway. But listen, another part of the mindset is that you have to remember in this industry, You don't just get paid for what you do. You get paid for what you know. As professionals, if you want to be seen as a pro, you got to be a pro. And one of the things you got to understand is that you don't get paid for what you do. You get paid for what you know. In the 1980s in the former Soviet Union many of you may remember there was a nuclear plant at Chernobyl that melted down what many of you may not know is that there was a second plant a couple of months later that almost the same thing happened the plutonium rods begin to overheat but this time instead of just sitting back to see what happens they got a German guy that designed and engineered the plant they got him on the phone they said man you need to get out here and make sure this thing does not melt down we cannot have another Chernobyl so the guy gets on the plant he flies to Moscow to take him out to the plant when he gets to the plant, it's total chaos. I mean, alarms are going off, red lights are flashing, they've abandoned the plant, they're evacuating the town. I mean, this is potential total nuclear devastation. But this guy walks in, cool as a cucumber, goes down about six flights of stairs, and goes down to the base of the bowels of this nuclear plant. They've got these cooling towers that house the plutonium rise to keep them cool. And he's right there at ground zero. I mean, if this thing overheats, if this thing melts down, he's gonna go in a flash. But he walks right through all this chaos, he walks up to a big wall there's all these valves and all these gauges. The guy looks at the wall for a second, he looks at one particular gauge, one particular valve, he reaches in and he closes the valve. Instantaneously, the pressures start coming down, the temperatures start coming down, total nuclear devastation avoided. So the guy goes back to Germany and about a month later he sends the bill to the Soviet government. When he sends the invoice, it's a one-line item invoice. It says, averting nuclear disaster, $100,000. So they get the bill and they say, $100,000? You weren't here for 15 minutes. We want a detailed breakdown of your invoice. So he sends the Soviet government another invoice. This time, there's two line items. The first line said, closing valve and averting nuclear disaster, $1. The second line said, knowing which valve to close, $99,999. You don't get paid just for what you do. You get paid for your years of experience. So the next time a homeowner asks you to drop the price, you've got to think like a nuclear service technician. You've got to think like a professional. You've got to remember, you get paid for knowing which valve to close. You know, folks always get a kick out of that power plant video because it really illustrates that it's all about what you know, not just what you do. I was speaking in Las Vegas a couple of years ago at a huge convention, a financial services convention, and they faced the same problems, right? People, you know, want something cheap because it doesn't take long. So I walk off the back of the stage. There's a guy back there taking my mic off, and he says, yeah, I went to my dentist the other day, and the dentist said I need a new crown, and then it was going to take about 30 minutes and cost about 1,500 bucks. And I said, doc, you're going to charge me 1,500 bucks for 30 minutes of work? And the dentist said to him, hey. I can I can make it take longer if you want, right? The bottom line is you're not paying that doctor for 30 minutes. You're not getting paid for 30 minutes. You're getting paid for what you know. Also on the show today, I want to bring in Gary Alex, our resident HVAC expert. And he's going to talk about his perspective on the mindset to be successful as a service technician. In this clip, Gary's going to talk about preparing for success. He'll also talk about Napoleon Hill and what Napoleon Hill found out from really successful people. right? He's going to talk about sitting down, planning, and thinking what you want to do with your life and business. And then the three Ds, desire to change discipline, and
2: dedication. There's three basic things that make up a successful individual. And so this is Napoleon Hill going back into the 1900s, where Napoleon Hill was asked, he was commissioned, actually, to do a study amongst an entire generation of successful people. Just think about you know, people like uh, the Vanderbilts, uh, the Rockefellers, The Carnegie's, and in fact, Carnegie was the one who established this particular study. So the Carnegie Foundation was all about, hey, what was, well, how do we, we made all this money, how do we give it back? How do we figure out a way to help life improve for people that aren't as fortunate and successful you know, as the Carnegie's were? So what he did is he employed a writer named Napoleon Hill, and he networked Napoleon Hill across all of his contacts, all the most successful people of that era. These were titans of industry. And many of the foundation principles that were established in business back in the early days of the American Industrial Revolution came at the time that Napoleon Hill was doing this study. And in fact, he wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And if you haven't read that particular book, it's probably one of the first books that you should get and read. Because Think and Grow Rich is not about growing rich in terms of monetary success. It's about using your brain and thinking through how to actually control the outcome of what goes on relative to your world so the thinking pattern is the discussion in the text which is hey how do I become the very best me that I can and what do I have to do differently so the cool part about what Carnegie did with Napoleon Hill is he said I'm not gonna tell you what I'm gonna pay you for this assignment but it's going to take the better part of your life to actually complete this assignment and when you're done I want you to publish the study I want you to be able to give this back to humankind And I want you to tell me the difference between what makes a man who is poor and saddled with nothing and sleeping on a park bench and has nothing in life, the difference between that individual and a person who had the exact same experience but somehow managed to get out from under that and become successful, which by the way was Carnegie himself. He was a poor Scottish guy and uh, he came from a very tough place and he turned out to be one of the wealthiest people on the planet. But what he learned through those experiences was it wasn't the difference in uh, who he was, it was the difference in how he thought and how he developed himself. So let's go back to that slide. There are three things. The first thing is talent. Uh, you can't make Gary Ellis taller than he is. I mean, I'm five foot six when I'm on stilts, and that's what I'm going to be because that's DNA. Uh, so I've been given some other gifts. One of them is not height. So uh, you can call me follically challenged as well. So my parents were gracious enough to give me the DNA that said, you're going to be U pattern bald. So it is what it is. Now, I can influence that through number three. I can control my technique and put some hair plugs in here if I want to. But number one is my DNA. This is what I have been given. Therefore, I have to develop myself to be the very best Gary that I can be. What I need you to do is decide what it is that you want to become. And most people really don't sit down and actually think through that. They don't really have a life plan. They don't have what we call a personal achievement plan. Uh, I've heard Wally talk many times, he calls it a prosperity plan. You can call it anything you want. They're all good names. The main issue is that you actually sit down and plan and think about what you want for yourself, your family, and what your interests are. And until you actually physically decide to make the transition out of, well, that's a good idea, I'd really like to do that, to that's a good idea, I'd really like to do that, now I've got to figure out how to do it. That's the difference between the person who takes action and the person who just talks about it. So mentally, if you go back to that section uh, on the slide, the B there is what we call the three D's and you should write these down. The first D is the desire to change. That's the desire for you to adjust whatever you're doing today as a habit in order to influence what you want tomorrow. You can't keep doing the same stuff that you're doing today and expect a different set of results. The cliche of that's the definition of insanity is true. So that is an important component. The desire to change is something that is not necessarily wired into people. You have to physically change what your habits are. And that's tough, but it's something that you can do. And I'll teach you exactly how to do that. The second D is the discipline, the discipline to physically do the work. You can't lose weight and keep eating hundred donuts in a day. It's not going to happen. So if you want to change the way your weight structure is set up, you're going to have to change your diet. There's a cliche that says in fitness, you know, abs are made in the kitchen, meaning that you can't outrun your fork. No matter what you do, you can't outrun your fork. You have to control your diet first. Eighty percent of fitness is proper diet. Twenty percent is what you do in the gym. So no matter what you do, the discipline to adjust what you're doing has to be a part of this discussion. So we have the desire to change and the discipline to do the work, and that's not easy to do. Most people say, oh, I want what I want, but I'm not willing to actually change, nor am I willing to actually do that. Oh, you want me to do that? No, I can't do that. So the third D is the dedication to your craft. Now, most of you are fantastic technicians. Most of you can fix you know, most anything. In fact, you've probably forgotten more how to fix than I have in my entire body. The thing about it is, it's not about whether or not you fix the machine, it's whether or not you learn how to fix the customer. So that's a skill set that we need to make sure that you learn, that we put in place, and so if you don't currently have that skill set, that's one of those desire to change, discipline to do it, and the dedication to your craft. So I'm going to give you a series of steps inside of this whole process where we're talking about, and it says. There's technique, that's where number three is. I can control what happens in life if I have the proper technique. You see the Olympics, these little Bulgarian guys that are about my height, they're probably quite a bit more physically muscular because they've spent enough time in the gym to build up those, those muscles. But they're basically 180 pound midgets, if you will. And what they're doing is they're lifting 500 kilograms, you know, sort of 700, 800 pounds, and they're deadlifting and they're using cleaning jerk and they're using the proper technique. What they're doing is almost unfathomable. I can't even move the bar, so, but they're the same size, but what they've done is they've put the work in, they've put the discipline in to train their muscles, they've dieted correctly, and they've had a coach, plus they've videotaped themselves under specific conditions so that they see themselves and they understand the technique on how not only just to move the bar, but to lift that thing, clean and jerk it, put it up here, or press it over top of your head. Now, That sounds like a drastic example. What we're talking about is basically changing the structure of how you view your own life and whether or not you want to put together a personal prosperity plan or whether or not what I call the personal achievement plan. It's that individual platform for you sitting down and saying, hey, this is what I want out of life. This is what I'm interested in. Whatever that is, I have to put together a roadmap for success. And so I'm going to show you how to do that. I can't make you do it. You own the three D's and you own your talent. What I can su- support you with is number three, the technique, most assuredly.
0: Now, folks, this is the kind of content you're going to get all the time as an EGIA member. If you're a member, you can watch the full video by going to Contractors Best Practices Library on EGIA.org. Just search attitude versus altitude and you'll bring up the full 40 minute video. If you're not a member and you want to get some more information, Fill out the form to the right of this video and sign up for a sample training absolutely free. On this week's Lesson from the Streets, I want to talk to you about a call that I went on a couple of weeks ago and it really ties into what Mike Treece was talking about earlier about having that service mindset, right, that attitude of helpfulness. I was going on a lead with a guy that I was training and I had decided I would run the lead for him. Sometimes when I go on lead, I let them run the call. Sometimes I do it so they can see, you know, everything, how it goes together. So we walk in the house and we're building some rapport with the homeowner. She's probably about 65 years old. She lives there alone. So about 10 minutes in the conversation, she starts talking about how she got a fork stuck in her garbage disposal. Well, I got to tell you, I'm the least mechanical human being on the planet, but I knew right away that was my opportunity to earn her trust, to earn her business and everything I needed to do. So I said, ma'am, I'll take care of it. So I went in there and I put my hand, uh, just got two of my fat little fingers in there, but that thing was so tight I couldn't pull it out, right? Well, by that point, I was committed to fixing this thing, right? I didn't, want, I didn't want to give up. I was trying everything I could to get this fork out. So eventually, I took the entire disposal off from underneath, broke the thing down, and got the fork out. The whole process took me about an hour. But let me tell you something. Over the course of that hour, I talked about our company. I talked about all the things we were going to do in terms of uh, the HVAC project. And by the time we got to the kitchen table, the deal was already sold. The bottom line is that relationship, that, that helpfulness mindset, that prosperity mindset, that service mindset, that's what business is all about. Now, every other week, myself, Gary Ellis, and Drew Cameron, we do the Ask the Experts calls every other Monday at 10 o'clock on the Pacific Coast, 1 o'clock on the East Coast. I want to share with you a clip from a recent episode where we talked about this topic of bonuses, right, especially holiday bonuses. Now, I realize we're past the holidays, but when it comes to company culture, you've got to be thinking about how you incentivize your people, how you reward them, and how you bonus them. Take a quick look and get the perspectives from myself, Gary, and Drew Campbell.
3: At EGIA, we survey our contractor network every month on a specific focus area to gain insight on how contractors are evolving their business practices to achieve maximum success. At the conclusion of each month, we publish a summary of the survey results and make findings available exclusively to EGIA members. At this time, we're going to review a few of um, last month's snapshot survey results on holiday bonuses and perks. So the first question that we asked our respondents was, does your company give employees a holiday bonus? And we found that 80% responded yes and 20% responded no. Um, so Gary, I'll have you first touch on this, um, just your insight in regards to um, providing employees a holiday bonus.
2: Thanks, Tobia. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that that number is at 80%. I think that sometimes we kind of chuckle about the idea that we're surprised by the negative side of that. Um, Who are the 20% that are the Scrooges in the world? Um, You know, jokingly, I I think that uh, it's not about the amount of the holiday bonus. Uh, It's not even about, I wouldn't even call it a bonus, I would call it a reward. So sometimes You know, that's monetary. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, getting a ham or a turkey or, you know, something that's a that's a gift. So um, I I think that that ought to be 100 percent. I think if you do something that's nominal, it's about the thought and it's about connecting with your team and it's about, you know, being engaged. So um, the 20 percent that aren't doing it, I think you probably need to rethink, you know, the culture and what you're doing and, and why you wouldn't want to do that. Um, you know, the hist- historical reasons why people say, I don't want to do that is, well, they get to expecting it and it becomes an entitlement. And I think the answer to that is, you know, culture and leadership. You, you make sure that people understand that it isn't something that's necessarily an entitlement and that, you know, you also rotate the awards or the bonuses and so forth and you structure it in a way that makes it uh, variable so that people can't predict or don't expect and uh and you should engage you should do it so drew i'll pass it to you
3: yeah and you touched on the one thing i was thinking too is the the thing about the uh, level of entitlement or expectation and again when we think when i hear this question asked the way that it is you know i think everybody assumes that it's it's christmas or thanksgiving and you mentioned obviously maybe giving like a turkey or a ham and uh and I know a lot of companies, you know, that, you know, that do that. And, and again, I would look, and I would look to get creative. Uh, you know, as I said, every day is a holiday, holidayinsights.com. Check it out. You'll really enjoy it. You'll have a little bit of fun with it. You know, uh, why do we have to wait till Christmas? Why do we have to wait till Thanksgiving to do something? How about a, like you say, maybe a ham for Easter, turkey for Thanksgiving, um, you know, maybe a, a small uh, gift card reward or something like that around Christmas so they can do something, buy something nice for themselves or an electronic, you know, a gift card to an electronics store. So it's not just a Visa gift card where they end up buying gas or something with it, but like maybe a gift card to an electronics store. How about Valentine's Day? Don't we love our employees? Why don't we give them like something around Valentine's Day too? And just do little things like Gary suggested to let the people know that they're important. And I would distinguish this from a year-end, like he said, bonus, if you will, that's based off of the performance of the position or the company. Uh, With that, I'll throw it to Wally. uh, Wally. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Uh
0: yeah, I would uh I would just also one of the things that Drew mentioned was that it could become an expectation, which is really, really uh true and the bonus expectations can often take on a life of their own. I've got a, a client recently, uh, year before last, they did very, very well and gave really generous bonuses to uh everybody, including especially the management, but they didn't really specify that this is because we hit these financial goals. Right? They didn't really show the relationship. The next year they got their teeth kicked in relative to the year before and everybody expected the same bonuses because to them it looked about the same uh, and it was just uh, uh, maybe a million or so less in revenue but it was like you know 40% less on profit and so they didn't they weren't really excited about it rewarding everybody for that really bad performance but because the year before they never made it clear it got really really dicey for them so I would just say whatever it is make sure you're really clear about what it represents you might want to make it clear, like this, that we can't expect this next year. We have to have another good year to do this next year, and to somehow kind of moderate those expectations because it can really get out of control. People often expect to grow from year to year, and before you know, the expectations are so high, you could do something really wonderful for people, but they'll still be disappointed because the expectations are so high. So it's it's a it's a little bit of a tricky situation. It's got to be managed like pretty much everything else in the business when it comes to communications with your people. Well, folks, that's our show for this week. Be sure and join us next week. We're going to talk about training as a service technician. It's one of the four components, and it's really, really important. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now.